gather in your word. Oh, what a joy to open our Bibles and hear from our God. You're speaking to us, Lord. You're telling us particularly about heaven and hell today, coming from your own words, Lord. And Father, what a privilege to have the Holy Spirit in us that we can understand these truths, apply them to our lives and live a gospel-driven life, Lord. Father, we think of those who cannot be with us. Many are online now watching. Lord, others are going through treatment or some difficult process. Lord, I pray, Lord, just bless them and care for them. and Heal them, Lord. Return them back to us. Thank you for our missions update this morning. Thank you for Pastor Melvin and all of our missionaries that we are uh, intrinsically involved with, Lord. We thank you for them. We, we're grateful to be with those men and women as they share the gospel around the world. Lord, now we ask that your spirit take the word of God and pierce our hearts. Cause us to believe more. Strengthen our faith, Lord, that we'd walk with you this week and bring great glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm concluding a series that I've been doing on salvation, and after Easter, I'm going to move to the book of 1 Corinthians and begin teaching through that book. But I wanted to do one more sermon. Last week, we preached about heaven. I, many of you commented and told me how much you enjoyed that message on heaven. But how can we not talk about salvation and not talk about hell? Hell is missing in the church today. Most churches won't teach on sin and hell. And so this morning, I want to direct your attention to the book of Luke, chapter 16, verse 19. I'd like to read the text to you, and then we'll begin to work our way through it. Luke, chapter 16, verse 19, reads this way. Follow along. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham afar away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said then, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent but he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Hell is filled with religious people. Let me say that again. Hell is filled with religious people. Jesus Christ spoke to some of the most religious people on the earth. 
They were steeped in religion. And yet they are getting a message by Jesus himself about hell. There's no one who spoke on hell more than the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire Bible, Jesus spoke more of hell than any other writer that was inspired by God. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, 22 through 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus went on later in his ministry about halfway through in Matthew chapter 13, verse 49, to say this. So it will be at the end of this age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the reasons I chose to speak on the biblical instruction of hell because it causes believers to proclaim the gospel more. We believe that God is sovereign. He knows all are his. He elects people to salvation. We have been through that uh, in many passages in the scriptures. But our job is to worship God and proclaim the gospel. And when I study hell, I want my children, my neighbors, the world to know Jesus Christ. And my goal today is to encourage you a difficult message on hell. Spurgeon said this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. The great preacher Richard Sibbs speaking on this text, says, it's better to go afflicted to heaven than marry to hell. I believe this is a parable to the Pharisees. I believe it is a parable that teaches people that if you try to serve two masters, you will end up in hell. You can only serve one. Jesus is exposing the Pharisees in this parable this is the context. It is not just the Pharisees, though. We are here today, 2,000 years later, to hear this, that the self-righteous are headed for hell. To pick up the context, to see how bad things are and what Jesus was preaching in, look just back to verse 14 in the same chapter. Jesus has been warning them that they cannot serve two masters. And look, look at verse 14. And now the Pharisees, notice this, the Bible says this, who were lovers of money... We're listening to all these things, and look at the last of this phrase, and we're scoffing him. They were mocking him. Jesus had previously warned them in chapter 12, verse 5, that they should not fear the one who can kill the body, but they should fear the one who can kill both the body and condemn the soul to hell. And yet they still mocked him. This parable is a strong warning to both those who partake in false religions and those who put confidence in themselves. Notice verse 15. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourself in the sight of men. That's a very important statement. 
Most people want you to think they're better than they are. This is what man does. He's done this from the beginning. He tries to justify himself in the sight of other sinners. It does no good. There's only one that your justification is worth anything to. And it's, it is the one who gave you it. Justification comes from Christ alone, from his finished work, from God. It's a gift, the part of our faith that comes, we're justified. But yet here, these Pharisees and many today try to justify themselves in the sight of God. But notice what he says, but God knows your heart. God knows the heart of all men, all women, all children, all people. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Jesus is getting to the heart of things, isn't he? Now, certainly the Pharisees believed in divine judgment. They believed in hell. But they strongly believed they would never be in hell. The Lord tells this parable to expose this, this self-imposed deception that they bought into. He's preaching this parable so that those who think they have earned the kingdom of God would be exposed with their wicked thinking. Now, the rich man is a picture of them in this. And it's not just the Pharisees. I want to make sure you know that I'm not just preaching a bunch of group of people 2,000 years ago. This pictures anyone who thinks they're good enough to get to God. These Pharisees, who are the example here, though, are full of pride. They're full in self-indulgence. They're lovers of money, as Jesus has said in verse 14. And they despise the unclean. They despise the weak. They despise anyone who is not like them. And most important, you have to understand this, they reject the true word of God. And we'll see that as this unfolds. Now, the rich man and Lazarus are a picture of contrast, aren't they? Just as uh, just a cursory reading, you see one is rich and one is poor, right? Just by the statements of who they are. One is fully satisfied, has everything he needs, lives in luxury and all the food he can have. And the other one is starving to death, isn't he? One has no needs at all. He has wealth. He can purchase anything he needs. He has people waiting on him. And the other has tremendous needs, doesn't he? One seems to be blessed, outwardly blessed. He has... Finances beyond what he can spend. He's lavished in the richness of this life. And the other lays on the ground in terrible suffering. One's honored. He's honored in life. He's even honored in death that we'll see. He has everyone around him telling him how great he is. The other one dies in humility. But Christ is going to show that all of this is reversed. All of this is reversed at the end of life. Interesting enough, Lazarus never speaks in this parable. And that's because the story's not about Lazarus. The story's about the rich man who goes to hell. That's the context. It's a parable about those in hell and their experience. And though it is a parable, there's things in this that we don't believe completely reflect heaven, but it's a parable to warn against hell, we hear a testimony coming from hell from this rich man. The reason why we believe it's a parable is 
that those in hell are not able to communicate ever with those in heaven. Thus we understand it to be a parable. Think about this. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 got a glimpse into the third heaven, the Bible tells us. And he couldn't put it into words to explain it to us. I don't think this is a perfect description of what hell and heaven are like. It's not fully complete. We find other passages that do this. But it is a parable to warn, to warn of the terrible things of hell. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says this, Inasmuch as it is appointed for all men to die once. We see that in this text. These men die. And after this comes judgment. People don't return from places. Despite what the false teachers say today. You've heard so many people, they went to hell or they went to heaven and they come back and they tell these stories. This text and many of the other texts and scriptures teach us that that's a lie. That's formulated to create money and false views of God and hell and devil and so forth. And this is a parable because this is a story Jesus wants to teach on a truth so that we don't go there. So that we warn people. So that most importantly, we preach the gospel that keeps people from hell. No other place in scripture do we see that heaven and hell are visible to each other. It's a parable. And nowhere do we see the dead being able to speak to the living. It's a parable. But it's a parable full of truth to teach us great things. Notice Jesus gives the poor men a name. He calls him Lazarus. I think a lot of people think that it, maybe it's a real situation because of that name. And, and certainly the Lord could have known. This could have been a man that he knew. But the, his whole name just helps us understand this a little bit. His name Lazarus means God has helped. <laughs> and, and we see a week before Jesus' death, he raises his good friend who was, who was quite wealthy it's important to understand that. And his name was Lazarus. And he, like this Lazarus and the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead, they certainly had God's help, didn't they? Also, I believe Lazarus is given a name, and I think this is important, because in heaven he's known by God. In heaven... The believer enjoys incredible relationships with those who have gone before us, with those of the kingdom of God, and with God himself. You have a name. He knows you. It was written on the hands of our Lord. However, in hell, there is no need for a name. It is a place of suffering and isolation. Jude refers to it as the black of blackness. There are no relationships and you are a nobody there. Hell is eternal judgment. It is the second death. As we begin to look at this passage, I want to break it down into four thoughts this morning. One, that we're going to see this is life under the fallen world. Solomon, King Solomon said, this is life under the sun. It's difficult. There's good, there's bad, sin reigns. God still gives common grace. We want to look at that. We also want to see that death brings great division, great division. Massive division between the saved and the unsaved. And then we want to see the contrast between eternal life and eternal death. And then finally understand that the saved only come to him through the power of the word of God. Number one, life in this fallen world does not reflect eternal life. 
life in this fallen world does not completely reflect eternal life. Look at verse 19 with me. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The Lord begins to show us the great contrast between these two men. The rich man has the finest of things. He's wearing the most expensive garments. He's marked with purple. This would have been something that showed great wealth. Most of the time showed some kind of royalty. Purple dye in this day, 2,000 years ago, was very difficult to get a hold of. And was extremely expensive. It seems that this happens to be the regular dress of this man. If you look at verse 19, it seems this is the way this man dressed habitually every day, showing that he was showered with wealth. Clearly, he had resources, he indulged himself, he lived this way in luxury, and even in extreme ways in this ancient world. Now, if you think the prosperity gospel is something new around here in America, you'd be wrong. The Pharisees invented it. See, the Pharisees believed that rich men like this man were blessed by God. If you had wealth, God deemed it to you. He blessed you. And vice versa, at the same time, they believed if you were poor like this man, you were cursed by God. It was just cut and dry to them. He's blessed, he's cursed. I can prove this to you. John chapter 9, blind man comes to Jesus. Remember what happens there? His own disciples have caught up in the culture, right? Well, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents? See, it's just common thinking. Certainly, this man has been cursed. Sin has brought cursing on this man. And guess what Jesus said? Neither. This is done, so I'll be glorified. You remember that, right? It was just part of their thinking. Remember verse 14. They loved money, and they're mocking Jesus. Jesus is called a man of sorrows in Isaiah 53. Jesus said, hey, follow me, but here, you need to listen to this. I don't even have a place to lay my head. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I don't have a pillow. Do you want to come after me? See, the Lord was separating in them. They, they had made up in their mind that if you're wealthy, God loves you. If you're not, he hates you. But I think this passage helps us understand that life in a fallen world is difficult. This rich man did receive blessings from God because we know everything good comes down from the Father. But this man enjoyed these full barns of his life. He enjoyed all of this, but yet never gave God glory for it. But in great contrast, Jesus starts to describe the man who is poor. Look at verse 20 with me. A poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with Soars. Note the extreme contrast. Man dressed in purple, living luxuriously. And then there's a man at the gate laying in the dirt. The word poor here indicates that this guy had nothing. He was experiencing extreme poverty. And if that wasn't enough, he was covered with sores, the Bible says. We get our English word ulcers from this Greek word. So that'll give you the idea. These are open, oozing wounds and you're laying in the dirt. It's not hard to see the contrast in these two verses. One man is lavish with wealth, the other is filthy, oozing, and listen to this, he would have been deemed unclean. And you were not to go near him or touch him, and he was to be shunned. 
On top of all of that, it seems that he was crippled too because the verse says, notice this, that they laid him at the gate. The word laid comes from balo, the Greek word balo. Ex balo means to cast out. Balo means to throw. So it's kind of the idea that possibly, this is my interpretation of it, that possibly his family or somebody came along there and dumped him in front of the gate of the rich man because he couldn't get there on his own. Maybe... The temple gate was so full of beggars that there was no prophet to be there. That's where most of the beggars went. And so he is dumped at the gate of this rich man. See, Jesus is making it painfully clear that the rich man had more than he needed, but showed no mercy to this poor man. And you might ask, well, how do you know that? Well, he's laying at his gate. How does he not know he's there? His servants walk by him every day. If he leaves, he must go by him. These are walled facilities, but walled homes. There's a gate in and out that was guarded for the wealthy. He had to see him there. Look, and furthermore, look at verse 21. And longing to be fed with crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Beside this, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now think about this word crumbs. I thought about this this week. I thought... Lord, I don't think anybody could survive off of crumbs. What does this mean? How could you live off of crumbs? A.T. Robertson, in his word picture book of commentary in Luke, gives some insight onto this. He said what this meant was the wealthy used their day-old bread as napkins in a sense. They would have some type of dish of water or oil that they could rinse their fingers on, and then they would take day-old bread and wipe that off and wipe their face off their dirty hands, and they would throw it under the table, and the dogs would eat it because they certainly weren't going to eat day-old bread. And so what it seems is the rich man would not even give his dirty bread to the poor man. Remember, Jesus is exposing the heart, not works here. Be careful. This is not a sermon to go out and tend to those less fortunate, although as Christians we should do that. He's exposing the hearts of two men, particularly the, the rich man. The rich man felt himself blessed. The Pharisees looked at the poor man and said he was cursed. Well, if this scene isn't bad enough for you, you'll have dogs. These are not dogs like we have. A billion dollars a year is spent on our pets in America. When you travel overseas, you may see some of these dogs. I've been in India, and they told me, don't pet those dogs. Those are not dogs like yours. They warn you of that. These are vile animals that eat dead things and clean up the street. And doubtlessly, this is what was coming along and licking and biting and eating on this dead man. I mean, this poor man. But up to this point, the Pharisees would have felt they were right. They seen the humiliation and the destitute of this man and they would have said, well, this is what he gets. He's cursed by God. He's done some kind of sin. This is what he deserves. And you go, Scott, how do you know this? Well, a couple chapters over in Luke chapter 18, verse 11, one of these Pharisees stands up and prays and he says this. The Pharisee stood and prayed, to the, prayed this to himself. So God sees this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. He actually prayed that to God and I think he believed it. God, thank you. I am not like them. See, they, in their self-righteousness, they had elevated themselves so far beyond what God had given them. They did not even have true faith. They saw themselves 
inheriting the kingdom of God by their own righteousness. What a complete contrast in this poor man. Second thought, death brings division to save, to the saved and the unsaved. Death brings division to the saved and the unsaved. All at once in Jesus' parable here, the inevitable happens, death. Notice this, chapter 16, verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. Now notice that, the poor man dies. Now maybe, maybe Jesus pauses right when he says that. Now he says, now the poor man dies and he pauses right there and the Pharisees maybe thought to himself, well, that's because he cursed a God. He sinned somewhere, and he's getting what he deserves. Maybe at that moment. And they would have thought, he's in hell where he deserves to be. But to their surprise, Jesus goes on. He's not only in hell, but he is carried away by angels into Abraham's bosom. This suffering poor man, he endured to the end because God had given him a God-given faith and God brings him to heaven. And I'll prove this is heaven in just a moment. And isn't that true? I know the parable does not go into the gospel in this point, but, but we can answer that question from the rest of our Bibles. How does somebody go to heaven? It is through Christ alone. It is through a God-given faith. It is through Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone. We know that's the only way in. Old Testament, New Testament has always been the same. And so he must have had a God-given faith. And he's brought into heaven. That's the only way. Notice the parable speaks of no funeral, no burial. And listen to this. Most likely, whoever comes along and cleans the streets probably picked this man up and threw him into Gehenna. You know that name. It's a name used for hell. Gehenna was the trash heaps outside of the town. Towns were built up on hills. They would let all the sewage and trash go down off the hill. And there they would kind of keep an eternal flame going, always burning, always smoldering, always burning. And they would throw these unknown, these unclean people's bodies in there. And there they would burn in Gehenna. And that's most likely what happened to this man. But there's something far greater than having a nice funeral heaven and that's where this man shows up and to the shock of these pharisees this whole turn of events must have blown their mind because the one who seems to be cursed by god is in heaven he's in heaven and notice chapter 16 verse 22 notice at the end of the verse it says and the rich man also died and was buried now notice here the Bible says the rich man was buried. And that most likely had a great, respectable, honored funeral. People stood up and said all kinds of, a lot of, a lot of great things about him. There was probably purple draped over his coffin or whatever they did in those days. And there was a great contrast. The poor man dies and this one is buried and has a funeral. But now, through this inspired parable of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are introduced to life after death. So what happens to the rich man? Look at verse 23. In Hades, he lifts up his eyes being tormented. In Hades, he lifts up his eyes and being tormented. By now, the Pharisees are stunned because the opposite of their belief system has just happened. Look, we're the ones who are blessed by God. He's rich. He should be in heaven. What's going on here? And look, this has never changed. Just like the Pharisees, so many people think they're not very bad. I'm not like 
those bad people on TV. I'm not like those people who rape and pillage and kill and do all those things. I'm not that bad. So I should deserve heaven. God should come and get me because I am not bad. I don't deserve eternal damnation. That is very difficult on people without the Spirit. But only people that God has granted faith end up in heaven, period. There will be nobody in heaven that God did not know before the foundations of the world and grant faith in grace. Look at the rest of verse 23. And saw Abraham, after he's in Hades, he lifts up his eyes and he's tormented. He saw Abraham afar away and Lazarus in his bosom. The rich man sees the poor man had died as well. But the difference in his life is this one was carried away by angels and he's brought into Abraham's bosom. And the word expresses the fact that God sent, listen, sent his holy angels to gather his holy elect and bring them into his glory. And to those in a work-based relationship with God, this was terribly disturbing. One immediately after death lifts up his eyes and he's in torment. The other one immediately after his death is in complete comfort in the presence of God. And I can prove that he's in the presence of God. Notice this term, Abraham's bosom. It's an odd term, isn't it? What does that mean? I remember reading this as a kid. I don't think I want to go there. <laughs> I don't want to be in somebody's bosom. It's only used here in the scriptures. And listen, let me give you just a simple definition to mark this in your Bible because people will ask you about this. It just means wherever Abraham is, he was. Wherever Abraham is, he was. So where's Abraham? He's in heaven. So what this simply means is the poor man, when he died, one moment after his death, he awoke in heaven with Abraham. I think that's beautiful. And there's one thing the Jews knew. One thing they knew, Abraham's in heaven. That's what they knew. Abraham was not in hell. They knew that. And Abraham was the father of faith in a way to them. Genesis tells us he was a friend of God. So this, this man assumed to be cursed by God is in a place where Abraham is. He has an intimate fellowship with Abraham and God. And the Jews were always defending their privileges that the children of, were the children of Abraham. And yet one of the children of Abraham is in hell. And the one who seemed to be cursed is with Abraham and the father. But again... In great contrast, look at verse 23. Here it tells us the rich man is in Hades being tormented. See, the New Testament leaks Hades and hell together as a place of the damned. Hades and death all relate to hell. This is why I had Pastor Jerry read that passage. And, and, and it's never, never reserved for God's elect. It's never reserved for believers, only for the lost. In Revelation 20 there, repeatedly, it tells us that death and Hades gave up their dead. And they were cast into a place that we equate with hell. Hell is rejected, excuse me, hell is reserved for those who reject Christ. And trust me, they are rejecting Christ in this passage. They're laughing at him. They're scoffing the only way 
to the Father where Abraham is. Now, verse 23 also says this. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes being tormented. Notice there's no transition place. I want you to think about that. There is no transition place. There is no purgatory. He lifts up his eyes and he is in hell. This is one of the greatest lies that have come out of religious circles. There's no transition. He's in purgatory. There's no waiting place. He dies and instantaneously is in hell. He is under the full wrath of God in this situation. He uses the word himself, torment. And I thought that word was graphic. And then I began to study it a little bit and realize it's in the plural. <laughs> and so it gives the idea of inconceivable suffering coming from every direction, accusing him of every sin he's ever committed, and showing him he's rejected God as he suffers indefinitely. Again, Jesus, more than any other, speaks on the darkness and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth of hell than others, any others. Those who reject Jesus are immediately damned to hell upon death, and it's called the second death. The Lord's using this parable for illustration purposes, isn't he? He wants you to understand that the rich man is somewhere and the poor man is somewhere, and he wants us to know how they got there. It's so important as you look at this parable that you realize, and I don't want you to go away without understanding this, Hell has no access to heaven. And souls in heaven don't have prying or inquisiting eyes looking on from hell. That's not anything the Bible teaches. It's a parable and God's trying to teach a truth to us. So Christ desired that the Pharisees and all who read this story would understand the experience of both. Look what he goes on to say, verse 24. Jesus speaking for this. In this parable for this rich man, this rich man cries out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. The one who showed no mercy is now crying for mercy. Do you see that? No spirit of God in him to have sensitivity to those that he could help in, in, in the means of helping somebody give them the gospel, right? There's no spirit of God there, right? So he's just left there in his luxury and has total blindness to the needs. Even if he believed he was unclean, if the spirit of God was there, Jesus himself went to the leopards, didn't he? The rich man's heart, his dark heart is being exposed in this text. Notice he still sees Lazarus as a servant. <laughs> he hasn't changed. He still sees Lazarus as this somewhat of a low life. Go tell, tell Lazarus, get, he's up there and he's got all this comfort. You tell him to go put his finger in the water and come dip it in and help me. You tell him to do that. He believed he was the child of Abraham. And this worthless, unclean man is in comfort, and I'm in torment. See, this parable also teaches that hell does not correct you. I want you to understand that this morning. It doesn't correct you. You don't go there, and you get better, and you, oh, I shouldn't have done that, and you burn the sins out of you, and you end up getting to heaven. That's a lie. 
This parable teaches us that there's no correction. It doesn't fix you. You have punishment for eternity. The rich man displays no repentance. In fact, he even talks about repentance at the end. If somebody will rise from the dead, they'll repent. And yet he has no repentance in this text. There is no repentance in hell. He's not seeking forgiveness. He has no remorse. He shows no humility. He treats Lazarus like a lowlife. Hell doesn't correct you. If anything, it's just a permanence of wickedness. Jesus uses the word gnashing all the time. Seven times he uses the word gnashing. And certainly it's probably because of the agony that people are in in hell, but it's also tied to hatred. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen preached the gospel to probably some of these men, they gnashed their teeth at him. There was full of hatred. My point is, people don't get changed in hell. They hate God the rest of eternity. And they gnash their teeth. Well, clearly there's no water in hell, right? He's asking for a drop. But even this is just, it's in a parabolic way to help you understand how bad it is there, right? Because why would you ask for a drop of water and not a garden hose? That's not what it's about. It's not not about this drop and, oh, that. It's about telling you how bad things are when you're separated from God. Then he says, well, I'm full of agony in, this is singular, this flame. Singular. It tells us the isolation of hell. There's flames designed for you if you don't know Jesus. And then he uses this word agony, and it means somebody in great pain. Certainly no drop of water could ever solve this. And finally, just to wrap this point up, remember, no crumbs for the poor man, no water for the rich man. Such contracts, such division and death. Third thought, there's a great contrast between eternal life and eternal death. There's a great contrast between eternal life and eternal death. Look at verse 25 with me. But Abraham said, and God speaking here and, and Christ speaking here and representing Abraham right in this parable, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Look at the great contrast. This, again, I don't think this parable is so much about Lazarus and heaven, but there is a few statements in there that really help us. He is comforted. The Bible in 2 Corinthians 1 calls God the God of all comfort. Here's one thing we know about heaven. You will be comforted. Comforted in every way imaginable. But not so with the rich man. The Bible says in verse 25, you are in agony. Abraham does call him a child here. Christ speaking on behalf of Abraham calls him a child. So what is that about? Well, certainly he's one of the highest creations of God, right? All men, mankind is made in the image of God. This is why we fight against abortion and those type of things. Even though we don't know who God is going to save, we love life. Because man reflects God. And so he's called a child here. He's a child of God in a general sense. 
And I think what he means is, listen, rich man, you've tasted the goodness of me. I've given you my goodness. I've given you loving kindness. I have given you everything. I've lavished you with you with you with this, and yet you've rejected. And plus, I give you common grace. I rise the sun on you every day. I send rain and, and sun to grow your food that you indulge in, and yet you abuse my kindness. See, listen, the lost can die extremely rich. And the truly regenerate can die extremely poor. Not in all circumstances. Many of us fall somewhere in between, in between those. But that's really true, right? That's what can happen. And you can enjoy this life to the fullest and all the blessings that God pours out in his creation and still die and go to hell and be under the eternal wrath of God. I've used this quote several times from this pulpit, but Spurgeon said this, the only hell Christians will see is that which they experience on this earth. And the only heaven the lost will see is the goodness of God given to them on this earth. And everything else reverses. See, the poor man's suffering was temporary, but his joy and blessing was eternal. The rich man's happiness was temporary, but his agony is eternal. He makes a real simple statement in verse 26 to help us understand the difference between heaven and hell. He says this, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able to and that none may cross over from there to us. I think this is a simple way where Christ wants to express in this parable that when you are in heaven, you will never go to hell. And when you are in heaven, you will never go to heaven. Excuse me, when you're in hell, you'll never go to heaven. It's just a simple statement. It says they won't ever intersect. And Jesus, in his all-sufficient parable here, explains that the rich man is, is, still, is still talking here, right? Look at verse 27. He still has something to say. Look at this. So we're going to learn from this testimony. So the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. Now, a couple of things that jump out in here. One is this place of term, torment is clearly um, the, the one which the rich man knows is eternally fixed, right? Notice he uses this word, NASB does it then. It could be say something different. But it's the idea, then. He goes, well, then, meaning if it's going to be this way, there's an acceptance to the judgment. If that's true, then get that servant of mine, Lazarus, and go have him tell my brothers. He hasn't changed, has he? He, he now knows, Ben, if this is the way it's going to be, if this is the way it's fixed, I'm going to be over here and he's going to be over there and I can't ever get to him and he can never get to me, then tell him to go tell my brothers. Again, he treats Lazarus like some kind of servant. And I think if there's any redeeming value in this rich man is that he cares about his brothers and desires them not to come to hell where he is. Verse 28 gives a little more insight. For I have five brothers. In order that he may warn them, he is the Lazarus again. Send, send the servant, send the, the, the cursed guy that he thought. Warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He's still after Lazarus. If... If he won't come and bring me a drop of water, then send him to my brothers. See, what I think ultimately, what I believe verse 27 and 28 are pointing to is the larger family of Pharisees. And it's a huge family. <laughs> In fact, we were part of it for a while. 
Every one of us, dead in our sins, grew up with a self-righteous attitude. We did not see the need for Christ. We are part of this family. And I think what Jesus is saying, look, this is, this is bringing in the larger family. Go tell this large family of mine that you're coming the wrong way. Self-righteousness is deadly. Works righteousness is passed down when the gospel is not preached. Did you catch that? Works righteousness is passed down when the gospel is not preached. If you don't preach the gospel in your home, your kids will think they're better than others and they will not receive Jesus Christ. Works righteousness is deadly. Now, the rich man now knows that his brothers are self-righteous and they're headed to hell too. And again, hell doesn't change people. Notice there's no repentance. There's no spirit of God. So Jesus um, gives this parable to explain why people go to hell. And that's because the rich man is there and his brothers are going to follow him. And ultimately, that's because they reject Jesus Christ in the word. Remember, chapter 14, they're laughing, they're scoffing at Jesus Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They mock him at that. Jesus gives the answer of how not to come to hell. And that's our last thought this morning. Number four, only, the only path to heaven is through the all-sufficient word of God. The only path to heaven is through the all-sufficient word of God. Look at verse 29 with me. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Well, isn't it clear what the answer is? He's telling them, you've got to go, you've got to send Lazarus, right? You've got to go. And, and so Jesus is giving them Lazarus the answer. Let them hear. The reason why you're there, rich man, is because you didn't listen to what? The word of God. They have Moses and the prophets. Think about this. Think, think with me. Hebrews chapter 11 is full of what? Old Testament saints. A whole list of them, one after another, says this, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Men and women who inherited the kingdom of God by faith, God has always brought faith as the means of coming to him. He gives faith. He gives faith. And so he says, let them have the Old Testament. That will lead them there. And you go, are you sure? Yes, Jesus, after his resurrection, Luke 24, rode to Emmaus with his disciples. What does he say? He says, oh, foolish ones, slow to believe that all of Moses, the law, and the prophets were about me. How does Abraham believe from God's word? How does Moses believe from God's word? How does Hannah believe from God's word? Work your way down through it. They believe because they trust God's word. And Jesus has repeatedly said to these Pharisees, you hear me, but you don't understand. Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parable because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Everything they needed to know about the holy creator, the law-giving judge, the eternal God was written in the Old Testament. Listen, Moses proclaimed his glory on the Mount Sinai in uh, Exodus 34, right there in our, in our midweek study on Wednesday nights. He proclaimed the goodness of God. Remember, he said he proclaimed the forgiveness of sins. See, that was all there, and yet they rejected God and held to their own righteousness. 
into verse 29, he says, let them hear them. You know, one of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse, excuse me, 3, verse 15. 16 is all scriptures inspired by God. I love that verse. The one before this, listen to this. This is Timothy talking to, excuse me, Paul talking to Timothy. In that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, that's got to be the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet, completed, right? Which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So how did Timothy get saved? His grandmother and his mother read him the scriptures and he knew he was a sinner and he needed God to deliver them through a Messiah. See, we have evidence. Listen, brothers and sisters, from Genesis 3.15, God promised to send a Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. And those who knew they were sinners longed for the coming Messiah. And they put their faith in God that God would rescue them from their sins, but not these self-righteous ones. You know, I love the story of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. You remember them? We're going to look at them. This week you should start reading this great Passion Week when Christ's body is dead and they go to Pilate and they ask. These are, these are men maybe listening to the sermon right here. Maybe right here in this whole uh, beautiful parable that's being told as their fellow Pharisees are mocking and scoffing Lord. They might have been there because they give their lives up to bring Jesus' body off that cross. Josephus believes they died for it because they had come to faith. See, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, and these men are mocking this. Look with me at verse 30. Here's the response to the sufficiency of scriptures, right? Verse 9 is about the sufficiency of scriptures. Let them hear them. But look at his response. Here's the rich man. No. <laughs> Whoa. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. You never repented, but they will, right? So notice there's this rejection of the word of God. No. Really? (laughs) Really? In other words, no, God, you're wrong. The scriptures are not enough. See why he's in hell? You see why he's in hell? It's a rejection of God's word. The word of God is not enough for most people. Look, they want signs. They want visions. They want to see God. They want all these things. And yet the Bible says the the scriptures are sufficient for salvation and everything else we need. And so this rich man cries out in his torment. He says that if someone rises from the dead, that'll be more powerful than the word of God. And that'll change the minds of my brothers. Into John, the book of John, John 20, verse 30 and following, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in his book. Revelation says, if we recorded everything he did and said, surely the world wouldn't contain the books. But he goes on to say, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The signs don't save people. God does. And he gave them plenty of signs. He, they watched people raised from dead, right? Little girls and, and, and Lazarus and so forth. There's the man dead. Is, he had died and his mother was, they were in, a, uh, in a, a, a funeral procession. And Jesus comes along and raises his son. He did that over and over. And then they still mock him, don't they? So this certainly wasn't the answer. Signs never save people. God does. And most of the world knows that there's a hell Right? Most of the world knows there's a hell. They use it for swear words all the time. 
It's in all their movies. I'm coming and hell's coming with me. You remember that quote? The world believes in hell for the most part. They believe in something bad could happen. There might be the worst people there. And yet, they reject the word of God that tells them the truth about heaven and hell. Look at verse 31 as we wrap this up and move to communion. But he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Is this true? Who rose from the dead? We're going to celebrate that this next week. Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and they don't believe him. And the book of Acts is full of the apostles proclaiming the gospels, all capped in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They personally had seen him raised, and yet they do the exact same thing they did to Christ. They kill the apostles. So this is a warning. It's a parable of warning. And like then, most people will reject this parable. There may be people here who will walk out of this service and say, that man doesn't know what he's talking about. And in, that, in essence, you can tell me I don't know what I'm talking about, but you're rejecting God's word. And you'll wake up in death one second after you die and find yourself in hell. Scriptures are complete. They give us the answer, you must come through Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone, for God's glory alone, and through his what? Word alone. That's the five solas. And they express how people get saved. This has never changed. This has always been God's manner of saving. And all who deviate from this manner, not coming through Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone, through his glory alone, through his word alone, go to hell. That's what the Bible teaches. You either reject that or you believe it. One of the two. There's no in between. Or do you? Doubtlessly in a group this size of people present here and watching online, there are people who are on either side of this. Let me ask you, you think you're good enough? Think you can balance the scales of your life? Or will you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? There is a heaven. There is a hell. And both are coming. Father, we ask that you would help us. We are but dust, Lord. And on our own, we would certainly deserve all of hell's fire and agony. But in your mercy, God, you have opened our minds and hearts to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have given us what we do not deserve. You have taken our agony and put it on your son. He agonized for us. He became the man of sorrows for us. And so, Lord, it is with great pleasure that we are going to come to the table and remember just that. Because through his suffering, we were set free. Lord, I thank you for parables like this that remind us that you're a holy God and sin must be judged. But you're also a holy God who grants forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room, everyone hearing this message, will know you as their personal Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.